You are listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we continue our Sunday morning series on Jesus' statements about himself with a series we are calling, I Am. With today's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. Two weeks ago, we were talking about the I Am statement on I Am the Light of the World. And we ended that message, I ended that message with this verse, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10. It's an interesting verse to me. I told you that morning, if you were here, that I find great comfort in this verse. Because as we walk through it, I'm going to explain it again, uh, just to be really clear. Who among you fears the Lord? We're talking about a believer in this passage. And obeys the voice of his servant, the servant being the Messiah. So right off the bat, we need to flip our switch to what we're talking about. We're talking about a believer, and we're talking about a believer who is walking with the Lord, who's in fellowship with the Lord. This isn't an unbeliever. This is not a believer who's living in habitual sin. This is a person who knows the Lord and is walking with the Lord, okay? So Isaiah goes on and writes this, let him who walks in darkness and has no light. Now we've got to stop and pause for a minute. Because so often when we think about a believer walking with the Lord, do we allow for the possibility that the believer who's in fellowship with the Lord, who's the light of the world, do we allow for the fact that that person can find themselves walking in darkness? Because I think if we begin with the idea that, okay, well, if, the, if you don't know the Lord, we get it, you're walking in darkness. We may understand that if you know the Lord, but you're in habitual sin, you're going to experience darkness in this world. But for the believer who knows the Lord and finds himself or herself in darkness, why? How could that be? So that was part of where we were two weeks ago. Well, Isaiah offers us some instruction. If we find ourselves walking with the Lord in obedience to the Lord and we find ourselves in darkness, his words, his encouragement to us is this, is that we just stay there is that we trust in the name of the Lord and we rely on him. And the idea being that it's better to be in the darkness with Jesus than to be in any manufactured light somewhere apart from Jesus. Well, as we walk through this, you may be familiar with that reality that you say, oh, I've known darkness. I've known darkness. I've known darkness walking with the Lord. I've experienced that. And one of the things that struck me, I was introduced to this book in college, if you're familiar with the, uh, with the author, Philip Yancey, he wrote a book called Disappointment with God. And in the introduction or the preface of the book, he brings out this fact that when people in his church started saying, oh, you're writing a book on disappointment with God? Boy, I have a story to tell you because it's not a rarity. If we've walked with the Lord for any period of time, you probably know what that darkness feels like. Yancey, in that preface, offers us these words where he says, I'm not going to debate the question, does God ever perform miracles? That wasn't the purpose of, of what he was writing. He was coming at it from the other side. But he writes this, I take for granted that God has supernatural powers and that he has used it. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you're familiar with that too. Yes, God can intervene. He can intervene. So why doesn't he do it more often? And I would ask you, who among us hasn't asked that question? 
Who among us hasn't found ourselves in that position where we're asking that question? Because Yancey concludes his thought with this. Why permit injustice and suffering to thrive on this earth? Why? We see the injustice. We see the suffering. And even the fact that we would say thriving, so often we think of thriving as something going well. And he takes us and he draws us back to the point where he says, Can, why does injustice and suffering thrive? See, those are hard questions. That I would guess we've all asked them. And then he comes around, why aren't God's interventions, why are they not ordinaries? Why is he not always intervening? Why is that not his ordinary reality? Why is it that we just refer to those as miracles? When he does intervene, why is that the miracle? Why is it not an ordinary? See, I think these are questions that we ask. I think in the dark recesses of our soul, we ask them. Sometimes we have the courage to put words to them and say them out loud. A lot of times we don't. Our passage today is going to bring us into this because I don't know that there's a darkness that we face in our experience of walking on earth tougher than the death of a loved one or a friend. So when I tell you a story of mine that still God in his goodness and his graciousness walked me through, go back in time uh, into when I was in seminary. And I'd met this friend, Will, Wilfred Sawodi. He was from Ghana in Africa. And Wilfred and I were going to graduate together. We went through our program together. You know, I was whatever. We're doing the same studies. But you know what Wilfred did in addition to his studies? He translated the Bible into his tribal language back in Ghana that had never had a written Bible before. Wilfred did that. While I'm taking the same classes and the same course load he is, he's translating the Bible into his tribal language. And the week before graduation, Wilifred uh, was going, driving down the street not far from the seminary, and there was a high-speed police chase, and that person that the police were chasing ran a stop sign and broadsided Wilifred's car, and Wilifred was killed on impact. And I think about sitting at graduation and the president of our seminary saying to our class, one of your classmates isn't here with you today. His casket is landing in Ghana today. And all I could think is, God, what are you doing? How is that fair? How is that right? I mean, look at who he is. Look at what he did. How is that something that you could smile at? God, you could have intervened, and you didn't. And somewhere in the deep recesses of my soul, I felt the whisper of God say, my calling on his life was to put a Bible in the hands of his tribe back in Ghana. Is that not enough for you, Lance? And I look up and think, how do we walk in disappointment when God doesn't show up in the ways that we wish he would show up, in the ways that we would pray that he would show up, in ways that we're praying, not even for selfish things necessarily, but just, God, how could this not be a good thing? 
Well, God's going to walk us through a little bit of, I think, what transpires. I'd encourage you to open with me to John chapter 11 as we're going to pick up this story. I recognize this story, at least to me, gets pretty heavy. And if you've walked through any of your own disappointments with God, this may be heavy for you as well. It's a story you may be familiar with, uh, but we're going to walk through this and see if we can't shed some light on this of some things that God wants us to take out of this. John chapter 11, we're gonna go through most of the chapter, so we're gonna be reading a lot today. Uh, And so I invite you to look with me at John chapter 11, verse one. We get a little bit, a bit of context here. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Okay, so we've got this family structure. We've got three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The other three gospels don't even mention Lazarus' name. We only get his name here. We've heard about Mary and Martha before. One of the places, and I referenced this passage not long ago, and I I share this with you again because I think we need to remember the personalities of Mary and Martha. We had this moment where Jesus goes to their house. He entered the village. A woman named Martha welcomed him into their home. Hey, Jesus, come on in. And she had a sister, Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Martha was distracted with much serving. Jesus is there. Mary drops everything and sits at his feet. She's just listening to him, adoring him. Martha's in the kitchen like, we got to get this charcuterie board ready. we got to get this out. He probably needs a drink. He's probably thirsty. So let's get this set up. You know, this is Jesus. So if we're going to love him well, we've got to be very hospitable. We've got to have all of uh, the accoutrements out so that he feels welcome. So he knows how much we value him. So Martha leans out to Jesus like, hey, Lord. You know, Mary, don't you care? Mary's just in there at your feet. Why don't you ask her to come up and help me and then we can both go out there and sit at your feet together. But the Lord answered and said, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and you're troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion, which for her will not be taken away. I'm not gonna comply. If you have two options to either be in the kitchen trying to prepare to serve me or sitting at my feet, Mary has chosen the better. Right off the bat, we're going to see that Mary has this heart that's a tender heart. I think she's a contemplative. She wants to be at the feet of Jesus. That's great. Martha has a heart that wants to do things. She wants to accomplish things. That's great. They just both have different ways of manifesting their love for Jesus. And all of a sudden, what we have Jesus saying is, Mary's chosen the better. Come sit at my feet and let's be real. Verse 3, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now we're getting a feel for how close this family actually is to Jesus. Jesus is about... uh, Bethany is about two miles east of Jerusalem. It's over on the east side of the Mount of Olives. Jesus is over there. This family, Mary and Martha, they know how to get a hold of him. They know where he is. And they believe that Jesus would want to know that Lazarus is ill. That's how close this family is to Jesus. And so all of a sudden in this context, they look up and say, the Lord, 
whom you love is ill. That Greek word there for love is phileo. It's Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It talks about, Lord, this one whom you love like a dear brother. We're three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But Jesus, he's like a brother to you. We know you would want to know because you love him. We don't know anything else about the illness. We don't know what the illness is. We don't know how severe the illness is. But they were anxious enough that they sent word to Jesus. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, it's an interesting passage because if we just stop there, I think we'd be led to believe, well, he just doesn't care. He's disinterested. Lazarus doesn't matter that much. Mary and Martha thought Lazarus was important, but they didn't have a true read on how Jesus really felt about Lazarus. And so I want to offer you two realities that I think come straight from that verse that we need to be aware of. Two realities. Number one, this is not about death. It's about the glory of God. It's not about the death of Lazarus. This is a story, it's a narrative. It's about the glory of God because this illness that he has is about to become the ultimate manifestation of God's being, his nature, and his presence. There's so much more going on here than we could ever imagine. So that's one. Number two is this. The story ultimately isn't about Lazarus. It's about the Son of God and that Jesus' true identity is going to be manifested and revealed and ultimately people will be able to see the reality of who Jesus is. Is that harsh? Well, let me ask you this. As a follower of Christ, would we have any greater calling in this life than to live our lives in such a way and die in such a way that we would reveal, reveal the glory of God to a lost world. Because that's where this story is taking us. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I'll give you another Greek word. That love is agape, which is an unconditional intentional love. They don't even understand how much Jesus loves them. They're like, oh, Jesus, you loved him like a brother. And we get this note that says, oh, no, no, no. It's much more than loving like a brother. Some of us have siblings that we enjoy loving. Some of us have siblings we don't enjoy loving. This is, oh, no, no, no. He doesn't love you like a brother. No, he is absolutely 100% all in on you. He loves you unconditionally. He chooses to love you, not on the basis of who you are or what you can do. No, he has a heart that loves you. Okay, so we get the note. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And you and I are like, wait, what? Okay, there's something deeper going on here. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was, verse 7. Then after he said this to his disciples... He said, let us go to Judea again. It's now time for us to get up and go. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? See, that was chapter 10. We're in chapter 11. 
Chapter 10, they want to stone him. So he goes away. He's got his disciples. Lazarus is ill. He gets word. And now he waits a couple more days because he loves them. Now get that. He waits a couple more days because he loves them, not because he's disinterested, not because he's against them, because he loves them. And now all of a sudden, the disciples are like, wait a minute. Uh, Jesus, last chapter, I'm sure you remember, they were trying to stone you. And you want to go back there? I don't know, Jesus. That's not very safe. Why aren't you there? Let's pause for a second. Because where we're going to go in this story, I think if you know the name John Calvin, he offers us something that we need to be really clear on. The mode in which God works, even if it's different than expected, okay? The way that God's working, even if it's not the way we expect him to work, we cannot say that it's because he is incompetent or he's insensitive, but it's befitting a greater purpose even if you and I can't see it, okay? It's really important that we understand that, that God's at work. And when we don't see him work, it's not because he's incompetent and it's not because he's insensitive. We've already seen the possibility that we could see this as insensitive. By the end of the story, we've got a few people that think he's just incompetent, okay? So he decides to delay his return, and now all of a sudden, here we go. Are you sure you want to go? They want to stone you. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? Both Jews and Romans viewed that daylight Hours were 12 hours. Nighttime was 12 hours. The idea of are you walking in the dark? Now he's going back into spiritual metaphor. If you walk in the dark, you're at risk. If you're walking in the light and you're with God and in fellowship with him, we're going to be okay, okay? So that's what he's about to do with this light and dark. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Okay, verse 11, after saying these things, he said to him, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, the idea of using sleep as a metaphor for death was a long tradition. And so when you say Lazarus has fallen asleep, they knew he was ill, they would have thought, oh, Lazarus passed away. Only, excuse me, hold on. Better. All right, so he says, you know what? Lazarus fallen asleep. I think the disciples are like, oh yeah, he was ill and we waited. But then he's like, we're gonna go wake him up. I'm like, well, wait a minute. So if you're gonna wake him up, then it wasn't metaphorical sleep. He was literally asleep. So why do you need to go wake him up? I mean, most people when they go to sleep, wake up on their own. Maybe they use an alarm clock. But why are we traveling to go wake him up? The disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. And Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest and sleep. Verse 14, then Jesus plainly said, Lazarus has died. Like, you guys are just not following me. Now think with me. They just heard Jesus say, he's asleep, I'm going to go wake him up. So it must have been physical sleep. The moment that he says, we're, no, he's dead, you know what still is true? We're going to go wake him up. We've got quite a moment setting up. And for your sake, 
I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. See, we're about to see the manifestation of the glory of God. I'm glad I wasn't there because you're going to get to see something new about Jesus, something new about me that you wouldn't have seen otherwise because it's about to get really great. You're going to learn something about me in the midst of it. So Thomas, now let's be honest. If I were to ask you, do you know one thing about Thomas, you'd probably say, oh yeah, he's the one that doubted that Jesus resurrected. And he said things like, you know what, I won't believe it until I see him. I'm not going to believe it until I can touch his wounds. Thomas here, we can put doubting Thomas and we, we attribute to him in a name, the, his, maybe his worst moment of faith. You want to see a great moment of Thomas's faith? Look at this. Let's call him Courageous Thomas from now on. Verse 16. So Thomas called the twin. We have no idea who his twin was, a brother, a sister, whatever. We don't know. Said to his fellow disciples, well, let us go also that we may die with him. Jesus, you want to go back? They want to stone you. Jesus says, yeah, yeah, but I'm walking in the light. I'm going to be okay. We're going back. Matter of fact, he's died. I'm really glad he's dead because you're about to see something really great and you're going to see me for who I really am and it's going to be incredible. And then Thomas like, I'm all in. If they stone you, stone me too. And he tells all the other disciples. Remember Peter's moment where Peter gets out of the boat and goes and walks on water? And I'm sure that all the other disciples are like, Peter, get back in the boat. And then they see Peter walk in the water and like, man, I wish I'd gotten out of the boat. And then they see Peter sink and they're like, ha ha, right? Now we've got a moment where all the other disciples are like, they want to kill you. And Thomas is like, I'm all in. Let's go. I don't care. If Jesus is going to die, I'm going to die with him. This is the best. I'm with him. I'm all in on Jesus. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, because of the climate is we're in this area of the country, of the world, because of the climate, when somebody died, they typically buried them on the same day. You didn't want to leave the body out to be exposed. So you would bury the body the same day. And that would usher in six days of grieving where family and friends would gather and come and support and encourage, bring food, be with you, sit with you, cry with you, all of the things, right? So now when we pick up the story, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now think with me. We already talked about the personality. Martha wants to do things. She's full of energy. She's frenetic. She wants to do things. She wants to accomplish things. Mary is a contemplative who I think is content to sit and feel, not to mention she had all these people in the house. She can't just leave them. How rude. But Martha, she wants to get something done. So when she heard Jesus was coming, verse 20, she went out to meet him while Mary remained seated. Verse 21, Martha said, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus, you could have done something. You could have done something. If you had come, when we sent word to you, if you had just come and done what we asked of you, we wouldn't even be in this place right now. You didn't show up. You didn't show up 
for me. You didn't show up for Lazarus, the one whom you love like a brother. You, you didn't show up. You didn't come through for me in the way that I wanted you to come through for me. Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I know God's hand is on you. I know his hand's on you. And I know it's a little strange. He's been in the tomb for four days. But if you would just step up, if you would just ask, there's a chance. There's a chance. I'm hanging on to it. There's a chance that you could raise Lazarus. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise. The text says again, that's actually not there in the original text. Your brother will rise. This isn't the end of his story. Your brother's going to rise. There's more going on here than you see. Martha said, I, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I, I am the resurrection and the life. There's our I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Look back at Martha's words. I know there's a resurrection. She's focused on the event. Jesus doesn't want her focused on the event. He wants her focused on the person. You're focused on the resurrection. Martha, what I want you to grasp, I am the resurrection and the life. The two go together. Without a resurrection, you don't have a life. The two are so intricately tied together that when Jesus offers these words here, I am the resurrection and the life, we can't miss what's going on. Martha wants the pain to go away. We will always have pains in this world. Jesus is saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. Stick with me. Stick by me. Don't look to a future event. Look to me now. I'm in your presence. And because of who I am and what I've done, you, your brother will rise. Not again. Your brother will rise because of who I am and what I've done on that cross. See, the pain's not going to last forever, Martha, but I am. And I invite you to be with me. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, know this. The pain and the darkness that you feel in this world can only be dissipated by one who says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Because he takes away the pain. He offers us purpose. He offers us meaning. We've been separated and there is a spiritual death and a physical death that awaits every one of us until there's a savior who says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And all of a sudden in that moment, what we learn is this, a physical death will remain for all of us, but a spiritual life is possible on the basis of Jesus Christ, that when he went to the cross, he paid the wage of sin, which was death, and he went to the cross, he was buried, and then three days later, he walked out of the grave offering us life. We will all exist endlessly. But the quality of life, when you know the resurrection and the life, is referred to as the abundant life, which awaits the believer. Those who don't know the Lord still exist endlessly, but it's a far different experience that's not ever defined as life because the quality 
is separated from God eternally. And so when we come back to this, Martha has this moment. Jesus, verse 26, do you believe this, Martha? Martha said, what a statement that she offers us of faith. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. That's the Greek word for the equivalent in Hebrew of Messiah. Yes, Lord, I know, I believe that you are the Messiah. You're the son of God. You're part of the Trinity who is coming into the world. We've waited for you. Our faith began with Abraham. We've been waiting the stories of our people. We've been holding our hat on the moment that Messiah, the Son of God, would come into the world. And here you are. It's a tremendous statement of faith that we get to see there. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. Hey, Mary, after this interaction, she runs back, gets Mary. Hey, Mary, Jesus is here and he wants to see you. And we, get, we pick up the story with Mary. The teacher is calling for you, verse 29. And when she heard it, Mary quickly rose and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. All right. Two people, two sisters, Mary and Martha, one Jesus, in the same spot, okay? Martha went to meeting. She went back to the house to get Mary. Mary goes back. There's a crowd of people. Now follow me. Martha's conversation with Jesus is in private. It's just the two of them. Mary's is in public because all these people followed her. So all these people are about to see and hear the same revelation that we're moving towards. Have both uh, two people, two different personalities. Jesus doesn't fuss at either of them. He doesn't, he doesn't condemn either one of them. And by the way, if you look, they both use the exact same words. And we've got this moment that's coming where Jesus in his compassion for Mary, having responded to Martha in coordination with who Martha is, what's happening, what's going on? I need to know, I need to know what's going on. He's like, hey, there's a resurrection He's going to rise. He responds differently to Mary in this moment. After she says, Lord, if you had been here with my brother, would not have died. It's the same thing. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, I'm going to tell you that that word troubled there maybe we'd be prone to misunderstand because I don't think that the English helps us a whole lot there. Like, why is he troubled? Is he disappointed in Mary? I don't think so. See, that word talks about deep emotional turmoil. He's angry. He's out outraged. He's indignant. Why? Because it was never supposed to be this way. It was never supposed to be this way. Genesis chapter 2. The Lord commanded it, 
if you surely eat of every tree of the garden, but if you eat of that, this one tree, that tree of good and evil, and the day you eat of it, you will surely die. I think Jesus is indignant at Satan, at sin, the impact of sin on this world, what sin brought into this world. He's looking around at these people whom he loves, that he came to save. He knows the cross is coming. You know why the cross is coming? Because Genesis 2 said the cross had to come once Genesis 3 happened and we had the fruit. He had to leave heaven. He knows what's coming on the cross when he's going to have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's looking at Mary crying. He's looking at Martha crying. He's looking at all the community crying. And he is angry and indignant because it wasn't supposed to be this way. doesn't mean he's helpless. He's about to do something about it that we're going to see. And we're going to understand how God begins to reveal himself in a new way. He's angry. Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? They said, come and see. And Jesus wept. He wept. Why did he weep? I don't think it's over the loss of Lazarus. He knows he's about to do something with Lazarus. I think he's weeping because he feels the pain of Mary and Martha and everybody else. Make no mistakes. When it comes to death, the same two emotions that you and I have of anger and weeping are the same two emotions that Jesus has about death, anger and weeping. So verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him. See, they don't understand his tears. Some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Oh, he was incompetent. He, did, he just couldn't do anything about it. See, we still have all of this going on. Verse 38. So Jesus is weeping, having been very angry. Mary's weeping. Martha, being Martha, is about to be very practical. Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. There was a stone against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor. He's been dead for four days. See, she's practical. And then catch this, verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? If you believe you're going to see the glory of God, I'm not going to move the stone without your blessing. And if you're hung up on the practicality of what the odor is going to be, you're going to miss seeing something really, really incredible. You don't want to miss this, Martha. And I don't want Mary to miss it, and I don't want anybody else to miss it. There's about to be something really, really incredible. Didn't I tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? Verse 41, so they took away the stone. Don't miss the faith of Martha. Don't miss the faith of Martha right there. Jesus lifted up his eyes. See, he wasn't about to do this of his own power, of his his own strength. 
gratitude and a heart that he was subservient to the Father. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around me. I want them to hear that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And that man who had died came out, his hands, his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. See, there was this thought, this tradition, maybe you're familiar with it when Jesus died, that they talk about the swoon theory, that you could swoon. And they believed that a person could swoon for up to three days. So the fact that he'd been in the tomb four days proved that he had really passed away. This was a resurrection. And Jesus has said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And what we see is this moment. If, uh, we were talking about through, through the seven I am statements. There's seven signs in John as well. If we were going through all of them, these are what we would see. If you look at this chart and you follow through the gospel of John, you would see the things that he's already proven. He has proven he's Lord over all of creation. He's over space and time. He's over our physical affliction. He's over our physical needs. He's over nature. He can walk on water. He's over blindness. And now we know that he's over death. The last weapon in Satan's arsenal was death. And all of a sudden what we see is his power just got stripped of him because the Lord is over death. And all of a sudden, he has the capacity to say, come out, Lazarus. As one commentator said, as if he had merely said, come out of the grave, everybody would have come out of the grave because of the power of the one who is over death. But in dictating that it was Lazarus to come out of the grave, Mary, Martha, the crowd who followed, all had a moment because he's the resurrection and the life. And in this moment, what we see is the great work of God. We all have parts of our story that we don't enjoy. Those things, those moments in our lives where we love the fruit that comes from them. I always refer to this as strange fruit. I love the fruit that comes from these stories, even though I never want to walk through that again. How do you think Mary and Martha were changed by this day? I don't think they would go through the grief of it again. But the fruit that came from it is the strange fruit that all of us would want. So we find ourselves in a difficult place as we look at this story. Jesus responds to death the same way that you and I do, anger and weeping. We've all been there. Why, is it an or, why isn't it an ordinary? Why is it a miracle? God, I would love for these to be ordinaries. I would love for you to always do that. And I found so much hope and encouragement from Dr. Tony Evans when he wrote this, you have to believe that God knows what he's doing when he's not doing what you want him to do. So we trust. That's what we do. And we want answers to questions. Why? Where were you? Why? What are you doing? What could be possibly so great that you're going to do out of this that you could not have done had you intervened? Well, Another verse I find comfort in, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. I do not get answers to all the questions I wish I could have answered. If I'm real honest, I don't know that the answers would necessarily bring me comfort anyway. Give me the answer. 
Okay, here's the answer. But, now see, I don't like the answer. Which is, I think, what Martha did. Oh, I know about the resurrection. I know he's going to resurrect. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I know that's future. Don't focus on the event. Focus on me. I'm here. I'm here with you. I'm the resurrection and the life. He will rise because of me. I am the resurrection and the life. And I want answers to questions. And we don't get them a lot of times. There are some things he gives us. And when he gives us to them, then we hold tight to them. So where is the Lord? What do we do in these moments? Well, we cry, we weep, we get angry, we lament, we can complain, we take it to God. Psalms are filled with people that do just that thing. But know this, if you've ever felt like he doesn't care, that he's either insensitive or incompetent, I want to take you to the end of Exodus chapter 2. The people of Israel are groaning because of their slavery. They've cried out for help. The cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning and God remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God knew the people of Israel and God knew. Okay? Kind of weird. It kind of, depending on what Bible translation you have, they may add some more words. And I'm going to tell you that almost all of the words in a translation adds from here do not do it justice because that word knew is the word uh, yada which talks about not knowing a factual statement. It's more deep than that. To know when it's this verb, yada, is to talk about the intimate knowledge between a husband and a wife. It is an intimate knowledge of experience of love and care. God was intimately involved with it. What was he involved with? The very next chapter, seven verses later, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their cry because of their task. I know their sufferings. He intimately knows what you're walking through in this life. Because when Isaiah comes around and he says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, it's the same word that we just saw about knowing their sufferings. He was a man of suffering. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our, same word, sufferings. So what do we do? Well, know this. He's not distant. He's with you. He may not be answering your questions. You and I might not find his answer suitable anyway. But he knows. And he doesn't want us to focus on some future event. He wants us to focus on him. I am the resurrection and the life. And Lazarus will rise. If you know me, you too will rise. But don't get lost in all of that. Focus on me. I'm the certainty. I'm the one that doesn't go away. And if you think I'm incompetent, watch me. Watch me call somebody out of the tomb. If you think I'm insensitive, I know everything you're doing. As a matter of fact, all the griefs that you're carrying, but know this, I'm carrying them with you and for you. The reason you will make it through today is because I am with you. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.